Hi there, I'm Simon Lee Marin, and welcome to the latest episode of Mind Matters. Today, I have the enormous pleasure of speaking to a good friend of mine and uh, a lady who I have the utmost respect for in every way possible. Uh, her name is Dr. Lisa DeRick. She is a research fellow at King's College London. She's a clinical training director research at the Research and Recognition Project, the owner of Awaken Consulting, which is a change management consultancy, and the Awaken School, uh, a psychotherapy service, and UKCP Therapy Training School. She lives in Snowdon, living the good life in Wales. Uh, probably not quite so much at the moment because it's bloody freezing. So, onwards to the episode, and I hope you enjoy it. I know having watched it through that um, there'll be a lot of people will gain an awful lot from listening to what she has to say. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so firstly, thank you for being kind enough to come on here and chat. Um, I know you've got you've got so much that you can share that people will will be like a sponge for I think would be a good description um life experience and uh therapeutic academic research the whole gamut so there's there's so much that you can you can give people here which is phenomenal um so in thinking about the 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 framework for for, the, for this conversation in terms of the more significant challenges that you've had in life um which ones really stand out for you in terms of the challenge of overcoming it and and what you've taken from it in a positive way that's helped you to kind of forge your way through life and become better at you? I think there's two that stand out. Okay. One I wasn't really there for, so that's quite interesting. Um, so I'll start there because I think that is the story of the journey and the learnings and the the kind of almost I won't say mission but the passion that I have in life um yeah. so when I was born I wasn't supposed to be a girl and they didn't have a name for me well they had a boy's name for me um and I was second child of a number of children um and when I arrived my uh, dad went oh it's supposed to be a boy so it took them a few days before they worked out a name for me um obviously named me Lisa um, and really from that moment forward, there was always a recognition that I didn't, that I was wrong, that I, as a sense of who I was, didn't belong in whatever it was I was doing. And then I kind of hit puberty, which was quite early for me, about nine or 10. And suddenly these things start sprouting called breasts. And I'm like, OK, <laughs> the I that I thought I was isn't actually the I that I am. So who am I? At which point, round about six months, five months, four months after my ninth birthday, my little brother was born, kind of a lay add-on to a string of children. And okay. mum and dad were self-employed, working full-time, and it was like, okay, so the I that I am becomes a mother at, at you know, the sweet old age of nine and took on that identity. And then also historically somewhere in there was um, – a sense of Lisa you're going to be a nurse because I was hospitalized just before I was four I was in three months in an isolation hospital and part of me probably dealing with the trauma of that was going okay the one person that 
I felt safe with was the nurse. So I'm going to come out of hospital okay. and I'm going to do nursing at four with all my dollies. So I've got the eye of you're supposed to be a boy, but you're not working out who that is. The eye at four of trauma, be a nurse because that's what's safe. The eye of being mummy because mummy's not around. So therefore I'll mother my little brother. The eye at puberty going, how do I do this thing called being a girl? And then kind of the sense of going through adolescence, of being on this journey of you are a female, you are a mother already to my little brother, and you are a nurse. There was no other choice given to me. So my sense of I-ness was still wrong. It didn't fit with who I was inside. Right. I then arrive in the NHS at the sweet age of 18 and one week, do my nurse training, see all these horrendous things back in the 1980s that you weren't shielded from and you literally were an apprentice on the wards. And so there was still this sense of the I being wrong, but I could do the nursing, I could do the taking care of other people, I could make it all about other people, which made it even more obvious that the I that I was wasn't that yeah. I was wrong at some sense. But as long as I put it into other people, it would be fine. And so then I do the dutiful thing. I get married. I have children. You know, I serve. I follow the husband around the country with his job, still doing the, the sense of service, still with a sense of an I equals wrong. And then I, so I moved into health service management after about nine or 10 years in clinical practice went through seven managers in five years not my fault I hasten to add just <laughs> NHS research. that was a quick qualification there very quick qualification <laughs> and I remember sitting on a communication skills workshop and I'd done things like basic counseling skills bereavement counseling psychosexual counseling as part of my nursing career and I sat in this one workshop and I was asked to fill in a questionnaire and I sat there filling in this questionnaire that had five questions on it and for each question, there was four categories that you could choose, which was most like you, which was next like you, which was even less like you, which definitely wasn't you. And I filled it in and it had these digits above it, V, A, K, A, D. I'm like, fill this in. What's this got to do with communication? And then the trainer put up, right, let's have everybody's scores let's get them up on the board so she put them all up on the board and she started putting red circles round numbers and on this ad column that i didn't even understand was like 20 and a big red circle around it and around the a column it was i think about 14 and a big red circle around it and then this v column and k column the, the numbers were so tiny and she chose me from the group and she went, how do things make sense to you? And I said, they just do. Sometimes things just make sense. But what do you feel when things make sense? I was like, um, well, they just make sense. And she kept pushing on the feel word. And at that moment, I suddenly realized that I was outside of Lisa, that my sense of I didn't exist. And I asked more questions in that workshop and I was introduced at that point to actually this is a way that people process their world. That if you've got a score of 20 in AD, which basically just means that you process through data, you process through secondary experience, not primary. Yeah. And it was like the lights went on in my head. Suddenly I started to realize why when I was saying things that was really, really important to me and I was passionate, passionate about People didn't listen. 
that when I made it about other people, ask them questions. So we come on today. How are you, Simon? Straight away, I make it about you. There's that pattern of behavior that goes, make it about the other person. Here I am now, almost 60, recognizing that I still have that ingrained wiring. So from that moment forward, that moment of recognition of going, there's something fundamentally awry in my wiring that means it's not okay to be in me that then became my almost my journey my passion I knew I loved working with children you know I'd been a mum from nine to my little brother yeah you know I'd I'd done the running the creche at, at Sunday school I'd done the babysitting in the small town that I lived in I'd done the St John's ambulance I'd done all those little things that was about making other people okay so that so that who I felt I was was based on their experience so so that then there was that kind of recognition it was like okay so how do I make sure that rather than use this as a rod to beat myself up how do I make this part of my career so kind of continue through the last couple of years of health service management realize it wasn't for me I couldn't be so cold in my decision making so I then went into the NLP world and, and had my first training with Tad James Blessing. And I remember on the workshop, you know, this it was a seven-day practitioner program, and Tad kept pushing me on, on one of the demonstrations about, well, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? And I was like, here we go again. And I said to him, if I could tell you how I effing well felt, I'd effing well tell you, I don't know how I feel. And he just looked at me and went, that's the problem. And I was like, well, first of all, how dare you say that to me? But it dropped me into a real sense of guilt about everything about me being wrong, everything about what I did being wrong, a real sense of Catholicism of God first, everybody else second, you were very poor third. So it was like, okay, here's yet another recognition that my sense of who I am is informed by those very early traumas of wrong identity at birth, hospitalization and an attachment to a secure figure, a nurse, taking that on because that was the first person that really showed any sense of compassion to me. No wonder I'd got to this point in my mid-30s where I was going, it has to be about other people. So roll on then another three or four years delivering training, um, you know, coaching, Moving into psychotherapy as well, which wasn't my intent. I never wanted to be a psychotherapist. And even to this day, still think, why am I doing this? I really don't want to be a psychotherapist. (laughs) Somebody somewhere is going, that's your journey. And I remember chatting. In fact, just before this, I did a workshop with Bill O'Hanlon over in um, the Northwest. I turned up for this three-day workshop with Bill who is actually just about retiring now from therapy um but Bill modeled Ericsson in the very early days um and and kind of in his family therapy career and I remember sitting in this workshop and Bill was doing all this beautiful work and I can feel this emotion coming up that I'd never really felt any emotion I had was something like I'd have a behavior I'd have a reaction I'd look at the reaction I go oh I'm angry So I would label my sense of identity with the emotion. I am angry. I am sad. I'm cross. I'm guilty. So it was a real I am rather than I feel, which was very different. 
So I remember sitting in this workshop with Bill and, I, and for the first time ever, I really felt, I just felt all this, I don't know, grief. I can't even describe what it was, but a real sense of desolation inside me. And Bill then broke for a break. And, as he, and I was sat at the front of the group. And as he came down, he stopped and he put his hand on my shoulder. He pulls me up now at this point. He put his hand on my shoulder and he went, are you okay? And I said, when is this thing going to go? I've been working on this for years. It is not going. I am so sick of it coming back up. And he went, okay. He said, will you come up with me after break? He said, I'd like to have the privilege of working with you. I was like, <laughs> it's just, you know, that moment where you go, really? And oh, he's such a lovely guy. So after the break, he kind of just nodded to me. I was like, don't make me talk about it, though. He went, you know, me, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. But me at this point, go, don't make me talk about it. Because the me inside had been so disconnected from what I really felt, what I was really passionate about, that I couldn't put it into words. Yeah. And and Bill used the most beautiful, beautiful. And I can't, I can't even remember what the trance words were. It's, I was so out of my kind of data head. And all I know was this feeling of warmth coming up from my toes. It literally came up through my toes, my feet, into my legs. And it was like suddenly, suddenly blood was flowing in my body. Suddenly my body was becoming mine. Yeah, I was residing, you know, I get emotional, but I was residing within me. So even though you say what was the most important or life-changing, life-changing for me was that moment from birth because at that point, and what, I'd have been, I don't know, maybe mid-40s by then. And at that point, suddenly I went, this is mine, this is my body, this is who I am. And about a year after that, I was teaching trainers training with Jeremy Lazarus and we had a brilliant lady Hillary Wilson who's just the most irreverent Scott you could ever meet I mean she's actually a pastor as well as an NLP trainer but she was she was doing this thing about are you a butterfly are you a caterpillar um, or are you a bat I can't remember but anyway there were these two characters that she was describing about how you market yourself and I'm sat at the back of the room going Oh, Hilary says she's left bollocks. So I've just sworn that this is the place for bollocks. So I was like, nah. And afterwards, you know, Hillary came back and said, How was that? Do you think the students got it? And I was like, Yeah, it's brilliant. I said, But that notion of following what the world wants for you, I've done that for years. I said, It hasn't worked for me. I don't, you know, the thing that people see me for in this world is being a psychotherapist that you know that's what I'm seen as you know I've been in NLP TCA as chair as training science officer that's what people see me for and I don't want to do that anymore I don't want to be the one that mops up other people's blood hurt sweat tears etc I just don't want to do that it's not who I am and Hillary and I battled for about two years every time we met we'd have this conversation she was like when are you going to step into being the, who the world wants you to be I was like and it was a real sense of, I've done that for 45 years I am not going to do it any longer and then I don't know how it happened but one day the way she said it to me I went I've been pushing against this door of wanting to be out there not wanting to be a psychotherapist wanting to be in the you know the corporate world which I've been doing for years anyway but I denied that I've been doing it or at least hadn't hadn't validated that I've been doing it 
that's where I wanted to be because that was safe because it didn't hurt. It meant I didn't get exhausted looking after other people. Um, and I thought, right, come on, just stop pushing against the shut doors. Try this on. Give it a year. If at the end of a year of you stepping into the space of the psychotherapist, if at the end of the year you don't feel better, listen to my dissociation, you don't feel better. If at the end of the year you don't feel better, you can just go back to doing what you were doing. So I stepped into it. And that was the moment. So I think about three or four months after that, I got approached to write my first book, Neurolinguistic Psychotherapy, A Postmodern Perspective. Um, I had, I think at the time, I was still chair of the UK Council for Psychotherapy. Um, you know, I was arguing with the government over loads of things, you know, around statutory regulation. My corporate world went through the roof, actually. I got way more work once I stepped into that identity. So I would have big corporations who I'd been working with for a number of years going, do you mind seeing Bill? Um, he thinks it's coming for coaching, but we've told him it's not really coaching. The organisation have said it's coaching, but actually this is the issue with Bill. Or could you see Julie? So suddenly the sense of trust that the organisation's held in me moved from being a job in coach or a job in trainer to somebody that was really deeply entrusted with their warts and all dirty laundry. Yeah. What was really happening in the organisation. So even though there was this sense of stepping into that psychotherapist identity that Hillary had said, this is, you, this is who the world wants to see you as, it was who they wanted to see me as not the role, me, what were the, the gifts, what were the talents, what were the wounds that I brought to the world? And I, it's just come to me now, the thing that Bill said at the end, this is the only thing I remember him saying at the end of that session with him was, when you learn to live through your wound, that's when it stops hurting. So at that moment, my self, who I am, how I feel is a felt relationship with people. It's a felt, this is, this is good enough. What we're doing, you know, what you and I are doing today is good enough. Yeah. You know, your soul is with my soul, with my feeling, with your feeling of this is a guy that I fundamentally trust and love. And I want to be in the world with him. I want to be part of what he's doing because we both know it will feel better for the world. Yes. In the same way in a corporate, we do it because we know it, both of us know it feels better. Our souls are on, this all sounds really waffy, but our souls are on some kind of journey and it's making a difference. Yeah. So, so, totally get that. you know, it's like you've got 59 years of one decision point of my dad's blessing saying what he said has led to all of that. And, you know, he's been dead years and I really honor and admire and respect him for doing that. Cause I wouldn't be who I am today without Arnold going, it should have been a boy. Yeah. And yet I can remember when I had my daughter, my first daughter, um, and we got her and I think actually Hannah must have been a baby or toddler as well. And it was a couple of weeks before my dad suddenly died. Um, and dad sat there in the chair and he said, and all of his grandchildren at that point were girls. And he said, God, he said, what is it going to be like when I'm an old man and I'm surrounded by all these beautiful women? And I thought, Dad, thank you. He, he at that point, acknowledged me for who I was. Yeah. But 
again, it's that journey. So that's the first kind of changing thing. And then the, the second major one, I think, was kind of a feedback loop of how, how being in your body gives you messages about the traumas that you've yet to play out, the traumas that you hold at a deep unconscious level that you don't know about, but your body goes, hang on a minute, mate. <laughs> and then it goes, here you go. Sorry, <laughs> I'm sure you've got a few of those as well. I, rem I remember, um, you know, I, I never wanted to be divorced. And I remember as I was kind of going through separation and divorce, it was all horribly traumatic. And so you get an idea now that my dad was just this, sometimes said things that he shouldn't have said. He was a bit blunt. He was a Dutchman. Um, and then other times he was just the most wonderful, big, cuddly teddy bear. My mum, you know, when I say about AD, it's like, there would have been nothing. Even now, there's nothing else other than the AD. Um, so I remember when I was going through all this stuff and it was just horrible, horrible, horrible. My kids were being, even though they're adult women, were being impacted. And my mum turned around to me and she says, don't you fall apart. Hold on to, hold on to it all. She said, stiff up a lip, get on with it. You made your bed, you lie in it. And I can remember saying that and going, oh, and then she said, um, you can fall apart when it's all over. And I said, that's when I'm going to take a break. So my divorce papers arrived on, I think it was the 5th of January, 4th or 5th of January. And the following day, I thought, go out with my partner for a cycle. I had a catastrophic, I wasn't even riding my bike, I was pushing my bike through mud up near uh, Fountains Abbey in Yorkshire. I had a catastrophic break of my leg. I slipped in mud, dislocated my ankle, spiral fracture, ankle completely shattered, foot pointed in the wrong direction, no blood supply. Early January, there's no way they could get an ambulance into a field. And I'm like, okay, no leg point at this point, you know, really thinking I was losing my leg. All the kind of NLP training, nurse training kicked in and went, okay, dissociate, really good at doing that. Put yeah. yourself in the bush over there because I was laying on the floor. Put yourself in the bush over there. Keep your pain under control by staying dissociated. Keep oxygenating because then if there is any blood supply going to your foot, it's got the best chance of getting there. Partner rang for air ambulance. Uh, There's no way the ambulance, even though the sent an ambulance got stuck in mud. Um, ended up being airlifted to hospital and, and as I was laying on the ground the paramedic leapt out of the air ambulance and a uh, fantastic woman and she looked at me and she says what's your pain score I went two maybe a three she went no it isn't and I said two maybe a three she says we're giving you dimorph anyway she says it isn't and then they obviously strapped me up couldn't reset my leg in the field it still was pointing where it wasn't supposed to be pointing and I can remember when they were carrying me to the helicopter me apologizing and having eaten too many mince pies going really sorry guys I'm a bit of a chunker here I've had too much food over Christmas just laughing just so dissociated from myself which was a, a real skill at that point put me into the ambulance and she said are you sure you don't want more diamorph and I was like I seriously I am fine and then I could see my heart trace and I was going, you're not fine. And she said, we are, she says, the rotary blades are glowing now. She says, we are not, you can't have anything else. And I thought, if I black out now, I'm in deep shit until we get to hospital, which was about yeah. an eight minute journey. And I thought, fix on her eyes. And like I've said to you that there's that kind of soul to soul connection where you know that 
that person gets where you're at. They get your feeling. They get what's going on inside you. And I fixed on her eyes. Anyway, long story short, leg managed to be reset three ops later, still got a load of metal in there, but can walk. But it was that recognition of I had said to myself, you can have a break and fall apart when your divorce is through. Yeah, that, wasn't, that wasn't the kind you were thinking of, though, was it? It wasn't <laughs> the kind I was thinking of, no. <laughs> Lay in bed for a week in hospital, no thanks very much. But it was that, that power that our unconscious mind has, that it will give us messages. And we can go, I'm not listening. I'm not listening. This is not going to happen. And, and we, we're not even aware of how we script ourselves in life. So, so it's kind of those two, two elements of a real feeling of who I am as Lisa that is deep core within me and a real listen listen to what's going on listen to what's what's responding listen to what's not responding follow the the pieces that are responding go where water flows not where it doesn't flow so I think it's those two elements that have brought me through to today and kind of yours and I, I's journey where we've met kind of in that, you know, we've kind of known each other on LinkedIn loosely. I've been aware of you. You've been aware of me. And there's that kind of sense of there are so many people in this world that are hurt, damaged, wounded, in pain because they've done something for other people. You know, all, yes. all of you guys that have served, that have literally given your real lives all your metaphorical lives because it is real servitude and you guys and girls are carrying that every doctor every nurse every person that works in the health service has given they're all hurting at some level teachers people you know hr managers everybody in this world has their own journey where they've given for whatever reason i i think there are very very few bad people on this planet very few Everybody else is giving and they're all giving from a place of knowing what it's not like, what it's like not to live, be, feel free or whatever. So if I, if as part of my journey, if I can make some kind of connection with people to help them and me work out how to between us, we make it a little bit better. I don't know if that has answered your question, Simon, but that, that, you know, that's coming from deep within me today. Yeah. My God. I mean, talk about a timeline of, of, I told you, you have <laughs> just a, a colossal supply of experience and wisdom. You know, I mean, where to, I could ask you so many questions on, on, on that. Go, go but, wherever you want to. The, we certainly well, as well go, I need to think about my children, but beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> The thing that stands out for me right at this moment is there's a big piece in your personal kind of life experience in discovering your own kind of identity. And that clearly influenced your work as well. How important is that piece in your work for to help other people become aware of? Really good question. So let me just take a step back again because I always like to join things up. So, you know, my, um, I've always wanted to make a difference in the world, always. You know, yeah. I've always had this thought of not, well, somewhere inside my head, I know that we can make a difference at World Health Council level. It has to be at a global level. 
whether it be the UN through through peace initiatives or whether it be at World Health, Health Council level for, you know, from a trauma or, you know, wounded child perspective and all the abuse that exists in the world. So, you know, how... I can't remember what your question was, but, but there's that sense of that's where it, it needs to be. And for some reason, I seem to have picked up that particular flag and I'm carrying that flag. And yeah. where I'm walking to seems to be an open door. So it's like, you know, when I had my PhD, I basically was thrown out of my first uh, Viva because I dared mention NLP in it. It was like, <laughs> actually, the Viva's nothing to do with NLP. Nothing, you know, the, my PhD was nothing to do with NLP. You know, I looked at a range of brief therapies and how they were being used in vulnerable groups from military veterans through to street sex workers, through to drug addicts, through to homeless, through to adolescents that weren't engaging in education. Um, so that's what I looked at. I looked at the relationship piece. But for some reason, these two examiners happened to see NLP in there. They didn't notice motivational interviewing, didn't notice solution-focused therapy. You know, they didn't notice all of the other modalities that I referred to. They noticed that and they went, while you have NLP in your PhD, you will never, ever get a doctorate. And I was like, thank you. But actually, you're not supposed to be examining more than that. And they admitted they hadn't even read the PhD. They just saw that and went, no, thanks. So I left with my supervisor at the end of that Viva going, you know, that's seven years down the drain, seven years of self-funded hard work while I was going through a divorce. What what the hell have I done this for? And then was you know, the whole load of stuff happened in the uni, but then it was through happenstance. I found out, I asked for a re-examination date. Um, wherever it said NLP, I sandwiched it amongst a whole load of other words so that it was mixed in with NLP, M-I-S-F-T. So hopefully they wouldn't pick up on it. And my external examiner refused point blank to find a date in his diary for at least 12 months before he could examine me, which would have been outside of the university requirements. So... That my the dean of the school that I, college that I was in or school that I was in at the university happened to bump into Jackie Sturt, who's professor of evidence based medicine at King's. I'd met Jackie donkeys years ago to discuss veterans. So the dean was there. She was chatting to Jackie Sturt in the lift, and, she, and the dean said, um, "Got a bit of a problem with his student. Have you heard of?" I think at the time I was still Lisa Wake. Have you heard of Lisa Wake? And Jackie goes, "Oh yeah, know her really well." They get chatting. Jackie goes, well, so my head goes, any chance you would like to be our external examiner? And Jackie's like, mm, but we know each other and certain criteria. You may not have written an academic paper together. You may not have done a research piece of research together. So we hadn't done those. We just talked a number of times. So Jackie then comes and examines my PhD. I then get passed on the PhD because it's actually a good piece of work and really, you know, makes some really good statements about the wounded healer and the role of the non-therapist in that. Next thing I know, you know, a few months later, Jackie's going, we really need to get to grips with this RTM, the, the trauma protocol. And so I end up being appointed as visiting research fellow at King. So suddenly I've gone from somebody who didn't get their PhD first time around, but gets it by happening to know somebody who then happens to examine me, to then being invited to the seat at the table as the clinical expert in that area that then is now looking at this being at a global level. You know, first RCT results will be coming out in the next month. So there is that still that sense of 
that joined up journey taking me to where I am now and that notion of that felt relationship between two people of working out and healing and working through those wounds is still at the core of what I do. Yes. Does that answer that question, Simon? Yes. A very roundabout way, I know, but... No, but there's... The, again, it's just so much good stuff. It's the work you're doing at the moment with RTM. Mm. Um, that's a really interesting piece in terms of credible, viable, appropriate option outside of what's the um the standard norm yeah moment which is not acceptable and appropriate a lot of the time exactly so i'm just you know to see that this there's an rct going on with rtm is just oh just makes me happy yeah (laughs) there's some common bloody sense out there at last you know i'll I'll change quite a bit of the story of of this one because it's fairly new Um, set of clients but these are two clients that both know each other they had both gone through a horrific horrific um, attack by a group Um, both of those individuals have I mean it was it was just horrendous what they went through both of those two individuals have kept the lid on that for more than 20 years Mm -hmm. both of them have worked so hard to be okay in the world they've both done incredibly well and neither of those two individuals could at any point even see a film watch a news report that bore any you know semantic in other words none of the words could be in any relationship to what had gone on so for example if we say remember the herald of free enterprise at zebrugger so it's nothing to do with that at all but if so, for those, if you mentioned Ferry, if you mentioned Zeebrugger, if you mentioned Herald, Free, or Enterprise, or Drowning, or the British Channel, any of those words could have triggered them. So, and and their story is nothing like that at all. So we've got this this um, set of maybe ten words that could trigger them at any point into yeah. it's as if it's happening today. So the first client comes in. And we always recommend three, maximum four, 90-minute sessions. So that first client client came in. By end of session two, she had no hyperarousal whatsoever. Could tell the story from start to finish without any reaction. I said, you really need to come back for the third session. You know, that's the rule. You have to come back. We'll just run it through. If you're all clear, she came, she's just giving gender away. Sorry for that. So that person came back at session three, ran it through, zero reaction. Yeah. Completely changed, not her life, completely changed how she related to who she was in her life, in that she was now fully back inside her body. Second person has just embarked on the same process, is now end of session one, which would have been last week. Um, we measure subjective units of distress when the person is, is starts to talk about, say, one of those 10 trigger words. Um, you measure how distressed they become, had gone from an overwhelming 10 to four and suddenly said, it yeah. feels like this massive dark cloud that's been hanging over me for more than 20 years is suddenly very very pale gray suddenly i can say one of those words and that was the biggest trigger word yeah. you know and we're talking maximum four sessions i am 
And, and, you know, the joy of it is, I mean, for teaching purposes, we do ask people to tell the story so that we can calibrate. But in a, in a, in a therapeutic environment, the client doesn't even need to tell you the story. You just ask them for the trigger word, fire the trigger word. If they get no reaction and then they run the story in their heads, it's gone. And what we're finding is that it's also gone through time. So up to, we're measuring it up to a year. It's gone in that time. And, and this, I think, is where my personal experience came into it. So I first experienced being on the receiving end of the RTM protocol when I went out to Florida to observe a full training. And we were down on a student one day. That person hadn't been able to come in. So I said, well, I'll be a client. So I go tootling off with some random therapist from Florida, sit in a room, and they run through the protocol with me. Yeah. Well, I had carried a lot of anger for the 10 years almost 10 years since the ending of my marriage I mean like real anger like couldn't even say that person expert husband's name without like wanting to do horrible things it was like this is not healthy so we've, we've gone back and we've worked on um a series of um night terrors that was what we worked on and I had no idea where they were coming from or anything went back and worked on the moment that I was aware of the night terror to the moment that I would calm down afterwards. That was what we focused on. So it had no relationship to any trauma in my past. As we were working through the protocol, suddenly a memory popped up and I went, oh my God, that's what I am. That's the trigger of in the dream of what then caused me to go into the night terror. Yes. So we cleared it. I then um, got somebody else to run me through on the second day. So I'd done it twice. I, I didn't get around to doing it a third time because I came back to the UK. But it not only did it clear, I've had no night terror since, and that was four, must be about four years ago now. No night terror since. But what it, it also cleared all that anger. Now I just feel none at all with regard to, you know, what happens, that person, et cetera. But it completely reframed 27 years of marriage, completely reframed it. Now, yeah. I don't know of any other therapy that does that. I think maybe 20 years of lying on an analyst's couch might help you <laughs> reframe your life. But most of us don't have 20 years or 20 years of money. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the fact that I can, I, you know, in two sessions – because I don't want to be really lividly angry with my kid's dad. That's not healthy for them. It's not healthy for me. It's certainly not healthy for him. So it cleared that, which was the important thing. Yes. But it reframed it to actually there were some really good bits. There were some shit bits, but there were some really good bits. Let me keep the good bits in the same way that if you've got a member of the, you know, ex-serving personnel, there will be some amazing experiences through their time serving beautiful experiences and relationships we don't want to get rid of that we want to keep it in the same way so that was the concern about these two individuals that i've seen recently with the same story or at least a connected story because they were together when it happened um for both of them it's really really important that they retain the kind of wisdom and the insight that comes through shit that happens yeah we don't want to delete or negate memories we want to use them you know, it's like we all learned when we were five, don't go touching the kettle, it's hot. Yeah. You know, don't go near the fire. We want to keep that in our neurology and grow from it. Yes, 100%. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I know from, uh, from must be two years ago. Yeah. I went through the RTM training with you. Yeah. 
Um, and I, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't recall ever having a dream about any of that since. Brilliant. So, Brilliant. personal experience, I know it bloody works. Yeah. Did it have I've a wide, been, I know this is me asking a question of you, but did it have that wider systemic impact for you as well? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, absolutely it did. Um, I think it kind of helped. I'd, I'd had a, um, some ident- loss of identity problems from before before that, but it kind of just shored everything up. Mm. Really, I think it just kind of yeah, rebuilt all the damage to the to the to the fencing. <laughs> yeah. And look at your world now, you know, what it is you're taking out to the rest of the world. It's, yeah, it's very different. It, yeah. Very different. And it's so, and I, you know, I know, I mean, I know what you do is amazing. And I know you're fantastic at what you do. You know, that's, 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 that, in my mind, that's never in question. Um, and I want the people that see this to know more about who you are mm. and what you do and, 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 to, to you know to read your books i've got in amongst my pile of gubbins here i've got i never know where they are but they're in here somewhere <laughs> my i've needed a bigger bookshelf i'm getting so many of mine up at the back now it's like pulling a third of a bookcase it's, um, so. so i will i will put um links to your books and anything else that you want me to to to, to put in there you just send it to me but what what else what are you so apart from the art obviously apart from this apart is, from the rtm apart from the rtm minor detail you know um, <laughs> i did joke with jackie last week jackie's dirt at kings i went do you really want me to work until i'm 80 <laughs> <laughs> probably not actually but there you go no sod that um so what what else are you are you working on um i'm work, work on me I'm working on getting fitter. I'm I'm feeling um, it's like nearly sixty. I'm actually I've just downloaded um, a beautiful set of PESI training on um, feminist approaches in therapy, and it's okay. just I've I've listened to the first one and there's twenty I think it's twenty of them. I've listened to the first one and gone oh my word, it's like there's something in me that finally I think is being pulled into a more non-gender feminist way of thinking and being okay that it's not something that belongs to women it's it's a way of being in the world and I think there's such a hardness rights and wrongs and hardness and and goals and all that kind which is great I'm not I'm not downplaying that but there's there's got to be a way of relating in the world that means we don't get into all the stuff that's happening in bloody you know Russia at the moment yeah we don't get into you know mine's bigger than yours my weapon's bigger than yours my voice is louder than yours my part you know I'm gonna get political now my part is okay you know it shouldn't be about that this you know there are people in the world that need that need want could be enabled through a loving pair of arms whether those arms are policies whether they're procedures whether they're country laws that there is a, for me, it feels like there is an emerging feminism across genders that goes, there is a place for womankind within men, women, and fluidity that can bring a better way for the world to be. So 
I don't know what the world holds, but I know that when something sparks me and I go, the world just goes, there you go. There's the next step, lady. Yeah. So watch this space. That I always do. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't even want to be chair of UKCP. I remember being in a, in a, I'd been there for a meeting or something. And I remember saying to the acting chair, Alan, some old guy, he was just a lovely guy. He was like a wizard with a great big grey beard. And I remember <laughs> saying to him, it's a bit disorganised this. I just wonder what it'd be like to chair this organisation. You know, that moment of, like I said, with my leg, I didn't listen to what I'd said. You know, six months after that, I was vice chair. Two years after that, I was appointed chair. It was like, why didn't you listen, girl? But that's that's how my life seems to work out, is I something comes into my noticing. I choose to notice, or I don't, in which case I end up nearly losing my leg, or I choose to notice it and go, that's the journey, that's the pathway, that's that's yeah. the next thing that this, this spirit is being called to do. And it happens to live in this body. And it's a felt spirit within who I am as a person in the here and now that then has a way of contributing. That's really, I mean, that, that's for me, that's really waffy, but I know what that means. No, no, I just understand because I know when we, when we first first met, you were assessing me for my NLP trainers. Yes, um, God, yeah. Credit, credit registration with ANLP. That was a long time ago. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. But what stood out straight away for me was you have a phenomenal eye for detail but you're also hugely compassionate you. you genuinely give a shit about people and you made that very very easy for me to go through because there was there was enough <laughs> there's a lot of work required with that it's <laughs> a rightful pain in the ass but there we go <laughs> no but you made it you made it easy and it was fun so uh, mm. you know I, I look back on that and think Actually, that could have been very, very different. <laughs> and also, Simon, I think um, I think where that com- that compassion or passion and eye for detail comes from is comes from the place where I know what it feels like to be hurt. You know, we are as coaches, as therapists, as change agents, we are in such a privileged and humbling position to be allowed into somebody's psyche whether it be their psychology of psyche or the psyche of their soul, it is such a privileged position. It's like, you know, I say to, to students, I used to use stride and edge, but I now live in, in on Snowden, so got slightly better uh, ridges um, to talk about. But, you know, I've never walked Crib Gork, but I have done, um, you know, the Riddhir path. And there is, there is a, a short, maybe 15, 20 feet ridge. Mm-hmm. And, and there's this, big wall of rock and the path is probably about six feet wide there may be four feet in certain places and you come up the this kind of incline and then you get to that ridge and on a glorious summer's day with no wind you could stride across it if you've got a head for heights yeah on a on anything that's not one of those days which is probably 364 out of five out on snowden yeah you know you you start that ridge you've got this wall of rock here and and that's kind of your anchor point that's where you go if the gust comes if somebody comes past if i lose my step that's where i'm going to go i've got this wall of stability that gives me a sense of knowing that things are going to be okay 
Yes. And anything else is not that. And I used to I used to talk about Stride and Edge about this sheer cliff drop and this you know beautiful sunlit valley. And actually, it's not that anymore. There is a core stability in me that I know who I am. And if you're my client, I know when we did that beautiful piece of work together on the training, I knew that you knew you were enough, that you have a core stability in you, that as long as I trust that you have that, and same with those two clients I've talked about, as long as I trust that you have that within you, both of us will be okay walking that path. Because I know what the gusts look like. I've walked it enough times. I know what the cloud formation is to know whether or not we're going to lose visibility. So let me trust your stability. You trust mine. I'll use my skills to watch the weather and both of us will traverse across that path. That's a really, really humbling and honorable place to be in or honored place to be in. So the reason that I really drill in with the the detail is I never, ever want to have said that person's good enough to refer them on, if I refer a client on. I want to know your stability. I want to know all the therapists that I train. I want to know their stability because they're walking that path with their clients. Yes. That's very, duh. What what, fantastic image. (laughs) I'm glad I've got a wall now. 20 years ago, I didn't have, I just had a cliff drop and a valley. At least a wall appeared. You get there and it's oh shit yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's that's unnerving don't like that bit much better to have the wall <laughs> yeah yeah so what would be your for anybody who's kind of is struggling with with life's ups and downs at the moment what would you what would you suggest to them what mm. what are your pearls of wisdom I think find your wall, whether your wall is, you know, like me going and talking to my free range chickens, well, they're not free range at the minute, but, you know, me (laughs) talking to my chickens, your wall might be, you know, watching the tomato seedlings come up. Your wall might just be putting the right lipstick on. Whatever your wall might be having a pint with the lads. Whatever your wall is, feed that, make that strong. Yeah, because if that's if your sense of who you are is strong inside you, because that's that's who you go to bed with at night. You might go with you know, like fifty wild women or men or whatever, but at the end of the day, the person you go to sleep with is you. That yes. if you know if I'd have if I'd have had that message, God, I don't know who I'd be today if I'd had that message when I was born, however many years ago. So if people knew how to create that secure backdrop of a wall of who they are from, a, from the moment they become aware they're not who they are supposed to be, if they had that, yeah. then, you know, life can throw curveballs. The wind can come, the rain can come, the clouds can come down, but you've still got the wall there. So whatever it is, no matter how small, no matter how big, you know, if you like extra cream on your hot chocolate with marshmallows have it you don't look back in 30 years time and go i wish i was slimmer i wish i didn't have a wobbly belly or a big bum or whatever or you know i'm not advocating smoke and stuff like that but you know when i'm working with clients who've got addictions don't get rid of the thing that's giving you the wall at the moment build who you are then we'll work on alcohol drugs 
sex, whatever it is that you're addicted to. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you. God, I didn't know I thought so deeply. (laughs) Surprise. See, it's because I always put it about the other person, but actually I really like me. So thank you for that, Simon. Thank you. Honestly, that's I've just I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to, I'm gonna listen to this one back, actually, I think, because there's so much that I'm gonna I'm gonna need to watch it several times, I think, to uh, to get full value from this one. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that people who watch this will will pick up on whatever they need to pick up on. Yeah, and I mean the best way to kind of work out where my head is, and I'm you know, I do just put stuff out there. For people to read i mean linkedin is just like my repository to go there you go think that not just, <laughs> think that but there you go have a read of that and work out what you think yeah you know just yeah so if you want to share my linkedin profile please do so there's no okay. point in people connect to me on facebook that you know i don't other than share with with immediate family friends i don't do stuff on facebook but yeah. linkedin is kind of pearls of wisdom territory. yeah well i will i'll, I'll do that I'll, your your linkedin your books um details about rtm yes please do um for anybody who wants training or is looking for a th- an rtm therapist, therapist yeah. um and anything else that you want just send it to me i will put it in the in the description in the uh under here so people can can access all that they need from you my pleasure you're a lovely man simon thank you for doing this getting your view out there is so important thank you um and just you know as always Love speaking to you. Yeah, I love speaking to you, you know, mate. We never, we never, we don't get the chance as often as we like because you're up to your eyeballs, and um, you're up north, be, uh... even further up north than I am. Yeah, <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> just a bit. Yeah. If I if I end up doing the route five hundred, I'll give you a yell. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we'll have a beer together. Yes, that sounds like a damn good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Thank you, Lisa. You uh, take yeah. care and and keep. Just keep being you. And you. I won't be you, but you be you. <laughs> Different, be nice change. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. Take care. Thank you.